Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Communication Solution Podcast. We have Casey Jackson, our director here at the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change. Hello. He's going to be riffing off of an awesome topic today that you may have heard about with motivational interviewing. Uh, my name is John Gilbert. I'll be helping facilitate, maybe throw in a few things. And our whole goal here is to help you improve the outcomes with the individuals, organizations, and communities you serve in this case with a motivational interviewing evidence-based lens. So to do that, we have a topic today of kind of vague, but we're gonna get deep into this, a deep dive into ambivalence. So I'm gonna kind of cue this up for you, Casey, of ambivalence, what does that mean from a very basic perspective? It seems like it's a fancy term, but what does ambivalence mean and where do you wanna take it today? And then we can kind of go from there. Ambivalence, when we look at it through you know, through a definition lens or through an ambivalent or through a uh, motivational learning lens is that it's just that people feel two ways. Um, what I've heard about in training that's really interesting is that I've had people that are a little less clear about it. You know, that they have some kind of vague general idea about it. I've said, you know, it's like, you don't really care about something. That's what they thought it was. Like, I don't care if you make peas or carrots for dinner as a side dish. Um, like, I don't care one way or the other. And ambivalence specifically in motivation wing, there's significantly more energy to it than that. It really has this thing to do with, I've got reasons why I'm stuck, legitimate reasons why I'm fine with where I'm at, and I've got reasons why I might want things to be different. Mm -hmm. uh, so you may get new, like for me, when I found out that I had excessively high cholesterol, I've got reasons why I really want to change that. But then I've got reasons why, like, I don't like to particularly exercise. And, you know, the thought of changing my whole eating habits is not highly appealing but the thought of dying is not highly appealing either so mm -hmm. i literally have reasons on both sides that i can make a case for change it's kind of like an internal teeter-totter of, mm -hmm. of feeling two ways about it mm -hmm. yeah that's really interesting you say that because that's uh i haven't heard that from a participant before of kind of like just indecisiveness that's yes. feeling two ways about it right i've never even thought about it like that so that's an interesting nuance that i think would be new even to other you know, MI trainers out there possibly too, of, or just people interested in this. It's not just a blase, a lack of caring, an yeah. apathy. It's not that. It's, it's an interesting concept here is that it's a care. It's a desire. It's something of a consideration of change and then feeling like I should, but I ought to, but I need to, but that kind of like, it would be good if I, but I got lots of reasons that are legitimate to me of not to, my time, my energy, my whatever. So um, when we're thinking about this, then it's about some kind of change, not just some apathetic decision. So I think that's a key distinction that you highlighted there. So then how does that fit in ambivalence with, you know, when you're thinking about MI and do they have to have ambivalence right from the get-go then? Or how do you start to think about, okay, I get a sense of what it is, but you know, do they have to have it or who do I target? Does, do I talk with someone that's always feeling two ways or what if they're right. only feeling one way? Uh, right. They're ready to go. Like, how does that all factor into it? Well, it's interesting because when you said words like blase or indifferent, I thought it was interesting. So I was thinking, you know, there's kind of the way we look at ambivalence and motivational interviewing, but I was thinking about, you know, generically speaking outside of the world of motivational interviewing, what is the real definition of ambivalence? What's the deeper... And when you were talking about the indifference or, or blase, I think like the peas and the carrots, peas or carrots perspective um, really comes down to the potency of 
it because you can have a low level of ambivalence like you know i kind of feel this way i kind of feel that way but i'm not particularly invested in this one way or the other mm -hmm. which is more the blase side of it so they're you know i've got i've got opinions but they're not difference it it takes me back to when i very 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 first was learning about motivational interviewing and we talked about the deers or the Ritas, however you were taught the acronym about and the a the double a was amplifying ambivalence so by that definition, even back then, it meant that you could have a lower level of feeling two ways about it. It doesn't have to be this potent or strong, massive amount of ambivalence that as long as ambivalence exists, which is what I've always taught, is as long as ambivalence exists somewhere within their, within their brain, it doesn't have to be powerful and amplified when you interact with an individual. It's just does any form of any inkling of ambivalence potentially exist within their experience or inside their thought process? What MI comes down to is how do I have any access to that? What's my access to it? And when I hold a mirror up to them, does it have any impact on how they feel about it? When they see themselves in the mirror, they can see themselves in the mirror and genuinely still not have much you know, potency around it. There may not be a whole lot of energy around it. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I really just don't particularly care about peas or, or carrots. You know, I'm not a huge fan of vegetables as it goes. I eat both of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I really don't care which one you pick. I guess, you know, it just depends on the color on the plate and the, the orange pops a little bit more. I mean, it just literally, they can have genuinely no strong opinion, but they do feel, you know, have some sense of feeling two ways about it, but nothing that's very potent that's where it comes down to how does, I mean, literally if I use that example and keep walking into a deep dive into ambivalence and motivational interviewing is, you know, if there's no difference to them about if they eat the carrots or the peas, what that comes down to is how much have they really thought about it? And I think that's in MI what I like to explore, not because I'm trying to make them or get them to eat one way or the other, or pick one, it's literally to explore the ambivalence to see is there behavior change to be had based on their own value set. Mm -hmm. Now, this is where it comes into another podcast we've done. How attached am I to the outcome? Am I trying to get them to eat something that I want them to do to pick the carrots and not pick the keys? Then you're shifting out of MI fundamentally. Mm -hmm. But the actual ambivalence piece of it they, that I think is one of the most intriguing things to explore is how do I explore if ambivalence exists? If there's not a lot of energy or inertia around that, that's where I think is fascinating, especially we move it from peas and carrots to um, addiction or suicide or, you know, heart disease or, you know, you know, you know, any, any of these more complex behavioral issues that we start to look at. Um, there tends to be obviously a little bit more spark somewhere in there. The, the one other thing that I'll, that I'll say too, John, just throw it out there and, and, you know, let you run from there as well is I think it's also the thing about does the ambivalence exist when we throw it out there or are we able to get past the resistance? Because I, I hear this often that, you know, well, what happens if there's no ambivalence? And what I am really clear to point out is you really genuinely, you have to be able to assess how are you, are you assessing resistance, the tension or the discord between two things? If you can't get past that, you may not be able to access to assess if ambivalence actually exists. Mm -hmm. And what I hear often from the audio tapes that we listen to when we're coding is there's some people that don't get past the resistance, the, the discord or the tension, and then come around and say, well, I couldn't use MI because they weren't ambivalent. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, 
a misassessment. Mm -hmm. You don't know if ambivalence existed because you didn't make it past the resistance or the, dis the discord of attention in the conversation to be able to even assess if ambivalence exists. So. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's a, a, it's very rare around that um, regarding not having any ambivalence, but having all defenses low. Um, right. it, it seems to be a rarity from what you've trained on and what you've experienced, what I've experienced. One example comes to mind, and then I want to bring it back to kind of what we're alluding to here and then kind of go to a different direction with it. But the example is one of working with a vocational rehabilitation system in a different state where they had a person that uh, had, had a disability that they were trying to help for getting employment. And that person genuinely felt respected and, and, and cared for and supported by the person that they were working with at that particular um, rehabilitation counselor, uh, VRC. And yet that person still thought the way the system worked, he was entitled to and deserved these particular things, even when his defenses were low, that's just his worldview that here's right. what I deserve and here's how it works and here's my belief system. And I really appreciate what you're doing for me, but I just got to take this to a hearing because that's what they did in that system. You go to a court hearing and you try to vet like that I've been treated unfairly and all these things. He right. was very much past a lot of resistance with this person. He still had a very specific view that he had no ambivalence about and around the whole thing, he felt that these things were entitled to him and deserved, which I've seen other people talk about in different, you know, government systems. And so there is this place of this person did their best MI, they were pretty skillful with their MI too. But at a certain point, we can't change someone's belief system unless we want to use compliance. And it's right. very rare, but I think that's a good example of a very extreme slim slice, as you might say, portion of people. But I know that the person that I was speaking with did an incredible job with empathy, getting in this person's skin and saying what it must be like. And this person just felt very engaged and supported by this person without defenses. And that's just so rare. But if you can do that, anything you would have tried anyways, probably wouldn't have ended up in a different outcome anyways. You would have been dragging them by their feet or trying to get them to change the whole time when they genuinely didn't want anything but that one outcome anyways. Well, and I think, you know, to clarify that even further is they may be so solely focused. And I would just, I'm, I think because my own writing reflects to that is if they're completely unaware that there's a problem, that is part of a definition of pre-contemplation. Oh yeah, definitely. It so was, yeah. yeah, so which doesn't mean that there is zero Point zero 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 ambivalence. It's that if we hold the mirror at enough angles, can they actually see that there is a potential for discrepancy there? And so it I think it is such a it's a very tight rope uh, to walk on with that because we don't want to try to instill the ambivalence. It's we're trying to uncover or reveal is there potential for ambivalence? And, and I know, I'm sure in that situation, like multiple skillful reflections were used, but part of just being uninformed that or unaware that by law or by policy, mm -hmm. this is not an option. And if they're saying, well, that should be an option, I don't agree, is different than, than being completely unaware that the law or the policy exists. Mm -hmm. um, so so th those are the things that I, my brain goes into a deeper dive with in terms yeah. of calling out you know, what are we looking at in terms of just denial 
of facts, um, yeah. which form of pre-contemplation, yeah. the ambivalence could exist if the denial was, you know, if we could work through the denial and there's no denial, then could they look at the facts that exist? That's, that, that, yeah, that, that's interesting because that's implying that ambivalence exists there and it could exist in possibly all situations. And I'm going to provocatively say that because then you're saying, well, there's always ambivalence to uncover. And I might, I'm going to push back a little bit. Well, what about belief systems in religion or conspiracy theories or things like that? Since we're doing a deep dive, I want to kind of open right. that up to say, well, where is that ethical line where your exploration is actually now you in trying to get to this inevitable thinking two ways about it where you're no longer equal position and you're trying to sure. to to just get the ambivalence that you believe exists no matter what you know that is a great distinction john that is an excellent excellent distinct distinction and here's where the distinction is for me it is when it is about informed choice when you know that the person has full access to all information that's available they're aware and they acknowledge they have access to all the information available and they clearly have a preference and they don't feel two ways about it. The, the, the example that I've used before that helps me under my brain understand where the ambivalence is resolved and it's not denial or lack of information is it's in a simple one. It's a really simple one. I just think of like a, a, a great uncle or, an, or a grandpa who's been smoking cigarettes since they were four years old and they know all the information. They know it causes cancer. They know they can die young from it. They know that it causes all these health complications. They know that people in the family are concerned about it. They know that they could have their life cut short and they're not around to see their, their grandchildren. Um, can we pause the recording real quick? Mm -hmm. All right. So, so when you think of that from this, you know, perspective of a informed choice and a, you know, like a, a grandpa has full access to the information, 100% unedited access to the information. They accept the information as truth as fact. That's not the issue. It's not that they don't accept it. They accept, I know that smoking causes cancer. I know that this substance issue. I know this could end my life at a young age. I know this could have an impact on my, my family, my extended family. And given all that, I'm okay. I don't have a problem. I'm going to continue to smoke. And they are continuing to, you know, they can take in new information, continue to evaluate, and they've resolved their ambivalence that they are fine with their behavior as it is and it lines up with who they see themselves as as a person then that is different than someone who is denying the facts or denying the information or is unaware that there's other uh, information to draw from so that's why for me the example that you brought up um it's is for me is clearly distinguished between having the accurate information open to all the facts in front of them absorb those facts and now it is a matter of informed choice and they just choose differently than what someone else may want them to choose. So that's that's the distinguishing point when we're talking about pre-contemplation, that slippery slope that you're identifying is a legitimate real slippery slope, but we need to be clear about how we're defining what that slope is. So. Okay, yeah, because it, it starts to get into aspects. I mean, this is a deep dive into ambivalence. So that's why we're really? going here. There's, there's other things that if you're interested in more 
conversations for most people about competing priorities and stuff. There's a lot of ways we can take this, but I want to keep going into this particular example just because sure. of we're, we're getting into or, or examples along these lines. What is ethical influence, which we have a whole separate podcast that we get into of how we define equipoise at yes. our institute. Uh, some yes. people called caseostasis in the past, yes. uh, versus, but what is equipoise and what is writing reflex? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because like, for example, in my world, you can lose of healthcare uh, and try to help people with their health a lot of the time, even in, in the counseling work I'm doing. It's a lot of times weight loss oriented and things. And so in doing that, there's a lot of ways to lose weight. You can lose weight through um, all sorts of different methods we don't need to get into from starvation to healthy eating to doing cocaine, right? There's a lot of ways to lose weight. And yeah. does that mean they're all healthy? Not necessarily, right? And one that's become popular is something called the ketogenic diet, the keto diet that became. And so then when you look at the facts and you look at the objective things, I can have a writing reflex as a healthcare provider that cares for this person's health due to some of those facts that look at mortality and hardening of the arteries and outcomes associated with decreased mortality, even if there is a short-term shouldn't say short term, even if there is a benefit of the weight loss and how that's happening, there's right. these other outcomes. So what is traditional is as a helping professional, I just want to inform this person. I just want to let them know, can't, can't you see what's coming ahead? Because I care for you and I want to see this. That's my reflex to make it right. I want to give them informed choice, Casey, right? Like, like right. there's this level of what we're talking about at like the very seemingly normal level when people are getting into MI, like I'm just trying to give them informed choice and help them out. So I'm just trying to see if they have ambivalence, Casey. So there's that level of it, but I know you're speaking to a different level. So I want to kind of walk through this. How do you take someone in that place of like, I'm just trying to reach them. I want them to have informed choice. How does that differ than what you're really talking about of of an MI deep approach to really be ethical about that. Well, I love the way you set it up because the way you set it up is, yeah, I, I want them to have informed choice. I want them to have all the information because if they did, they'd make the decision that I want them to, that I think is best for them. So, I mean, if you play out that thought, it's Ooh, still- I'm gonna jump in. I'm gonna jump in and say, sure. that might've been picked up and I might be unconscious of something going on there. I will say that I genuinely, in that example, it was being a practitioner that says, I want them to have informed choice. So my intention of saying that is, and how you've helped train me is, I want them to know that there is this mortality thing. And I do know that it's, I want them to, but it's a fact, like you said, with the smoking or some of the other stuff. Sure. So, so how can you transition then if that isn't my intention, you know, you just coached around that, but my intention right. really is to give them informed choice with that information on the table, how do you now shift from that fix it mode to informed uh, choice mode with being ethical in the process? Sure. Well, the way you know, in the in a um, kind of in a gut sense, and I'll then I'll clarify that even further. My gut sense when I'm really looking at informed choice is <laughs> the way I talk about it is when I can look in the whites of their eyes, and there's something about when I look at them that I know their brain has absorbed more information. And usually when that happens, you can see some ambivalence exists or the reconciliation process starting to happen. They're reconciling their ambivalence in that moment when they have informed choice. If it is just a flat stare and you can see nothing is processing or appears nothing is processing, then I'm always questioning, are they able to see it or access or feel like they can get enough underneath that their brain can process the information? So, so I think that, what are we talking about with informed choice? 
the, the way that I look at it beyond the, the gut feeling or the whites of their eyes is if they can articulate part of what being good at motivational learning is, is being able to be in that level of empathy that you can feel their brain is either processing or not processing, which is wildly different than just throwing reflective statements out. So there should be some level of connection or engagement or rapport through high empathy that you have some deeper sense of is their brain engaging with the information that's being provided? Is it overwhelming? Is it causing a writing reflex or a, or a pushback within them? Those are things that if you're highly engaged with an individual, you should have some level of assessment if that's going on. So with a situation where they are completely undefended, you're providing pure information that the best knowledge and the best research and the best information we have this, at this moment in time, they look at it, they study it, they absorb it, they weigh it out with their ambivalence within themselves, and they come up with a solution that this is what I'm going to choose to do from here. In motivational learning, we empower people to make a decision that aligns with their values and their goals based on who they are and what they want to achieve in their lifetime, what, the, what their, their target is for their lifetime. So, so, so that's walking through an informed choice perspective. The problem is if they, the reconciliation they come up with is not what the professional would choose, this is where it becomes a slippery slope. What you were, what you were identifying, John, is then is it the practitioner continuing to say they're in pre-contemplation because they're not agreeing with me? Mm-hmm. Obviously, if they could see the information the way I saw the information, they would not make this choice. No, you seeing the information the way that you're seeing it, you would not make that choice. So, so it is, it is the level of acuity in which you are assessing their assessment is critical to being able to distinguish is, is this informed choice or are they still not having enough information or processing the information? I think the challenge that we have is if they're not making, especially if it's a critical, like you're talking about, you know, potential impact on their own mortality, who would not choose the decision that's going to give them a higher level of, more, of, um, of, of life expectancy and quality of life? It, that, that, I mean, these are the nuances we're talking about that are so, I mean, the level at which we're splitting hairs to get really clear about that requires a significant amount of self-assessment, personally and professionally, your capacity to self-assess, where am I being triggered? Where am I attached to someone else's outcome? And then I will just detach from all that for a second and say, one is not right or wrong. It's just a matter of what are you trying to orchestrate in this conversation? Mm-hmm. So it's not wrong because you're having a writing reflex. It's not wrong because you want them to have a better quality of life and live longer. But then you're going to be pulled further and further out of motivational interviewing in terms of your skill set that you're using, the more attached you get to that. Yeah, and that speaks to there's two critical things here. One, just to riff off of what you just said, it's that that is defined as compassion and am I the third edition, right? There's a compassion there uh, in motivational interviewing where you genuinely care, but we're talking about a way of channeling that compassion, a way of concentrating it, of filtering it, of whatever you want to say in a way that's different than maybe would be just outright giving the information right away, that would be different than maybe trying to say what someone should do or ought to do because of what I believe is the, the professional. It's, it's, it's this channeling of compassion that you still care, but you're, you're caring in maybe a different way than is your immediate reactivity, it sounds like. So that's- Right. That's and, a- and, and for me, the caring and the compassion 
in and in through a motivational lens or energy or the spirit of it is that you're caring and compassion is how do I empower this person to be the best version of themselves as they define it, supporting their autonomy on that level versus I wish they would listen to me because I really think this would put them in a better position, mm -hmm. um, which by definition is more self-centered. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not coming from a bad place. It can come from a compassionate place, but it is much more self-centered than that mm -hmm. other individual you're talking to centered. And that, that also gets into in my third edition of how to define compassion, because it's defined in lots of wisdom traditions and things in lots of different ways. And there's lots of conflation. It's that that person's agenda is more important for them and their life than your agenda for them. In essence, you're not projecting your agenda and your values, which is, which is really important to answer things around like this example, and then I'll go into others. But what you were saying is being able to really have a nuance of, of their ambivalence and how much right. is it you seeing that if you just explore it enough, there's ambivalence there and you're trying to get them to, to see, you know, that versus really exploring what maybe isn't the target behavior. And this is what I wanted to bring it back to from before that is a kind of a interesting discussion in MI is do you always start with the target behavior of what you're going to have for dinner or not? Are right. you going to stop smoking or not? Whereas right. what we're kind of alluding to is a certain way that we approach MI that you train me in and that we, we train on at the Institute, which is, can you get in, in and above the target behavior? So you might not be talking about, for example, in this case, the keto diet, you might be talking about eating more generally, but ideally you're talking about their health and their well-being right. and their future and how much that relates right. to them, just like the smoking example. And at a certain point, there's competing values maybe for some people of the short-term gratification versus the long-term well-being right. and fulfillment. But some people, like we're talking about, they just have a different value bend that their peace of mind of not changing and some of that yes. stuff matters more than any perceived sense that other people have, any belief system that others have about science or anything else, that their peace of mind reigns supreme. That's one example of now I'm trying to get this person to see my values, that I value well-being and that they're not having my value structure and that I believe in science and that if they believe in science too, with this, my perceived conspiracy theory that they're having, I would get them to see this thing. And it's like, I think they have ambivalence. I think they need to have more informed choice. I'm putting my values and projecting them onto them versus really being curious and channeling that compassion to step in their shoes and feel what it must feel like, believe what it must believe like, and be curious about that and explore it is a whole different way of channeling your compassion, seemingly of what we're talking about, than trying to help with informed choice from the other perspective of like, I need to inform you versus I need to be informed of you and then see what you think about this particular topic. Seems like the energy difference. Well, yeah, and it, it just, I mean, it just summarizes the difference between more self-centered and more other-centered. I mean, just that that's what it comes down to is whose narrative are we operating from? Mm -hmm. um, and in motivation, I mean, we're operating from the other's narrative. And until it gets to a place in a conversation where even if we're operating within their narrative, when they find stuck, stuckness in their, in their, and their full decision is to try to move forward, we may have insights or ideas or expertise or knowledge that can help them pick a path or approach that's gonna align with them getting to the top of where they wanna go, getting to that ultimate destination. So it is other-centered, but even when we provide our insider experience or our knowledge base, it's based on 
illuminating cobblestones that help them walk in the path that they want to walk down, um, not the path that we're trying to get them to walk down. So, I mean, that's what we talk about with partnership and motivational interviewing. So it's not that we are completely um, absent from our selfness in the entire MI conversation. That is not true. Mm-hmm. What it is, is during those moments of ambivalence, it's that person's own values and goals and choices and behaviors and options and knowledge base. Um, excuse me for that, um, that that will actually get um, identified in the moment too and be able to work through from there. That, 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 that that's not where we as an MI practitioner are going to be operating from mm-hmm. as much. Um, what's coming to mind is like, well, if this is resonating, if someone's listening, if you are listening to this and you've made it this far and you're this MI geeked out like we are on all this ambivalent stuff, there are some things I wanted to kind of bring up. I know that you do these Friday sort of things. So I wanted you to kind of speak to that at a certain point, these calls um, uh, once a month or something where people can kind of do some Q and A and geek out with you. And I want to point people to some free resources. And then I also want to point them to if they really want to get into the skill set that also we have, it's especially in our advanced training and our refresher training, we get deep into exploring ambivalence. Like that's, that's much more about it than our intro training. We also have skill building series. And if you really want to geek out with the skill set, we have immersion trainings where we just practice with feedback, practice with feedback. And then of course, there's the individual practice with feedback sessions. So those are all the kind of like services that relate to this. But in terms of some free uh, resources. I wanted you to speak at least to the Q and A and any other things you know for for reaching out to us for people that want to hear more about these types of dialogues, um, so that you know people that are really not just focused on the skill set but they can geek out on MI. I was just wondering. I know you have a Q and A, and I didn't know if there were other other things. Well, you know, honestly, John, when you say that, the, what my brain just starts to you know ping around is that the whole point of why we do what we do at IFIFC is honestly <clears throat> for whatever people want. So there's the things that we have, but there's also just putting in the requests of, you know, would you guys offer this or do this or do that? Our whole resource <laughs> library is based off requests from people, professionals, just saying, I want access to this. So two of the ones you're referencing, one of them is um, the supervisor support series that I do. That's that's monthly for supervisors and there's different groups of supervisors that get together and they want to know how do I stay in the MI zone in a leadership role. Um, so I'm not trying to change one specific behavior and get somebody to stop smoking, but I'm trying to organize and and lead a, a team of individuals. So how do we look at MI through that lens or is that support? And then there's the um, monthly web. It's not a webinar. I don't know what to call it. I'm doing it for almost a year now and I still don't know what We're to call so it. We're so not tech savvy with that. I know. And it's a, it's a monthly gathering, basically, a monthly chance to yeah gather get together um with me kind of in the center of that gathering of people um to just talk about anything that people want to talk about in terms of mi that maybe you not bring might not bring up in a training or things you've thought about or run into the client or your personal life um so it's just a chance to actually have open forum dialogue um that just looks through a motivation lens i mean we we veer outside that mi lens when we get into other things as well um, but most everything we try to look at is through an MI lens, which doesn't make it right or wrong. So there's so many right ways for people to access more information around all this and more supports um, because every day, literally every day, we're churning out new resources uh, to support people so they can provide the services that they want to and develop professionally the way that they want to. So that's why I, I, I think checking out some of the other podcasts and things and 
for anyone that wants to get better, you, we know the research is so consistent around submitting audio tapes and getting coaching. You know, you've got to get personal feedback. You want somebody to, to, to see your work or taste your work and give you specific feedback. I mean, that is the, the beauty in, in coding and coaching. The yeah. way. With an evidence-based fidelity, reliable tool. Exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, and pun intended, if you're ambivalent about any of that, that there's also the option of uh, sending an uh, email to admin, A-D-M-I-N, admin at ifioc.com. And we will take all sorts of requests there for either podcast topics, things for Casey and I to riff off of, skill building things we do in our gold membership, where there's a whole monthly membership that if you sign up, you're hearing the podcast now, you can get the basic level for free that has these and the newsletter, or you can have the gold membership that has skill building activities that we've customized from people's requests. Well, we could customize more skill building activities. We'd love to. And so that's an option. I mean, there's so many things that if you just express yourself with us to us at admin at ifioc.com, that's a whole nother way. You have ifioc.com to put in a request for a specific kind of training. That's an option. Absolutely. But there's also these free options we're pointing to too. So this isn't just some thing to like sell services. This is honestly adding value to help you, you know, be, as we talk about, the communication solution to change your world. So that's what we're really trying to do here. We hope to hear from you. And that's the last bit I got. Casey, anything else for you? No, I just appreciate it. I love that people write in and ask for us to kind of, you know, go on to these topics and walk down these paths and explore on this level. I mean, that's what we love to do. And especially that people like to listen to it and are finding value and it is just kind of best case scenario. All right. Well, hopefully this helped you in a most cheesy way resolve <laughs> your ambivalence about engaging further with some aspect of your communication and helping people to be that communication solution to change the world for the better. So we, we appreciate you taking your time and effort and hope to see you in the future. Take care. Thanks. Take care.